well, thank you guys for having me again. It's uh, always nice to be asked to come to speak at a church a second time because it means that the first time couldn't have been that bad. Either that or Pastor Lisa really wanted a vacation this week, I'm not sure. Um, it's a little harder to do the second time, though, because as a missionary traveling from church to church, I primarily just get to use the same sermon over and over again because it's new to everybody who hears it. But uh, this one uh, should have been pretty easy. Uh, we're talking about the purpose of Christmas, and we've even got a book for it, and Pastor Lisa gave it to me and pointed out the chapter that she wanted me to speak on. But you know how uh, you get kids who always ask the, the why questions over and over again? They go through that stage like, Mom, why is the sky blue? And maybe Mom answers. She says, well, it has to do with uh, spectral scattering and the wavelengths of the different colors. And then the kid always asks another question like, well, why is the wavelength of blue shorter than red? And, and there's always another why question and another why question. And at some point, inevitably, the kid uh, surpasses his mother's knowledge of physics. And the answer, all of these answers always come to the same. It's, it's like that because God said so. Now go to your room. I never actually got out of that stage of childhood. So I read the book, and then my curiosity was piqued. And so I, I had more questions. So I read more books, and I read more books. And I learned a lot of interesting things about some of our Christmas traditions. So if you're like me and you really are fascinated by history and culture and seeing how things fit together in the big picture, this sermon will be really interesting for you. If you're not like me, I will try not to take it too personally if I catch you nodding off in the back. So on the surface of it, uh, the purpose of any holiday is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's right there in the name. The word holiday comes from holy day, and the word holy means to be separated from the rest of the mundane, to be set aside for a special purpose with God. Um, the Bible doesn't give us any instructions for Christmas. It has the Christmas story, uh, but we're not told how to celebrate Christmas. It would have been pretty useful if we were. God could have weighed in on the real versus fake tree debate or told us when it's acceptable to start listening to Christmas music and have your Christmas tree up by. I, I still say if it's before the 10th, that's probably too early. Some of you would disagree with me, though. So we do have instructions for another holy day in the Bible, though, and I thought we could take a look at that one because we might learn how to celebrate this one from looking at one of the others. That one is Passover. It's in Exodus chapter 12, and I believe we have some of the scripture. To oh, yeah. Nice. He's way ahead of me. All right, so this starts in Exodus 12, 8 through 11, and then we're going to skip ahead to 24 through 27. All right, that same night, the night of the Passover, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. I'm skipping ahead to 24. Remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. 
then your children will ask, what does the ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. I don't know if any of you have ever had the chance to be a part of a traditional Jewish, they call this dinner the cedar. I actually got to do it once, and it's really cool. I highly recommend it if you get the chance. The way they perform this meal is it's all very ceremonial, and it progresses in stages. So at each stage of the meal, a family member will get up with the Bible, and they'll read part of the Exodus account. And then as they do each of these things that they're told to do, the, the father will ask the child to explain what this means. So as I got to be a part of this meal, as we're going around, it gets to the, the part where it says, eat the bitter herbs, the bitter salad greens. And what we used in our meal was uh, horseradish combined with a couple of other things. So you take a pinch of it and you eat it, and it'll give you a pucker that lasts until next year's Passover. <laughs> and then the father will ask the child, uh, what, is, what do we mean when we eat these bitter salad greens? And the child will respond, well, the bitterness of the herbs reminds us of the bitterness of the years of slavery in Egypt from which the Lord saved us. And the father will ask the child, why do we eat fully dressed with sandals and with a staff in our hands? And the child responds, it reminds us that the salvation of the Lord is never far away. It's coming quickly and we have to be ready. And so they have all of these really interesting and important traditions. And I imagine that after the first few years of doing this, the children mostly know what all the symbols mean. They don't need to have it repeated over and over again. But every year, it's always the same. They'll read the passages, and then when they perform the, the ceremony, they'll explain what the elements mean. Because they, one, by doing that, they are showing honor to God by repeating what he did for them. But as they do it, they also wanted to make sure that there was no chance of these traditions ever losing meanings. Now, similarly to Exodus, we also have traditions for Christmas that have highly symbolic meanings. That's why I put up a candy cane, and I'm glad that Pastor Lisa didn't steal it, because I only brought a couple. <laughs> you guys know the story of the candy cane? The, uh, the story goes that in 16th century Germany, there was a priest who was having trouble with some unruly children in his congregation unruly children, so some problems never go away. Looking at you guys back there, no, just playing. So as we uh, do in the youth group sometimes, we, Brenda and I had the innovative idea to bribe children for good behavior with candy. And it appears that this 16th century priest had a similar idea. There was a candy maker in his congregation, and so he went to the candy maker and said, look, it's, it's coming up on Christmas, and I really want to give these children something that will keep them quiet during the, uh, the celebrations. And so can you make them something special? And the candy maker, he went to make them some candy, but he didn't want to make just anything normal. He wanted something special for Christmas. So he took a hard candy that was already popular with the kids, and he shaped it into the form of a shepherd's crook to remind the kids that Jesus is the good shepherd. The base of the candy was white to remind the kids that Jesus lived a sinless life. Across the candy, spiraling up and down, are red stripes to call to mind the verse that by his stripes we are healed. 
red to represent the blood of Jesus. And if you count, starting at the base, there are three separate stripes that swirl up the candy cane, one for each, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The flavor, today we use peppermint. When he first did this, it was hyssop. Uh, That's another member of the mint family. And if you read further in the Exodus account, when the Jews are doing Passover, it's hyssop branches that they use to spread the blood of the lamb over their door. Uh, He used hyssop to remind them of the covering effect of Jesus' blood. That was changed to peppermint because I guess it tastes better, but they're similar. Another of these uh, Christmas traditions is the tree. This one also comes from Germany. In ancient Germany, before Christianity came to Germany, the evergreen tree was already sacred in their pagan religions. Uh, Because it stayed green all winter, they believed that it symbolized life. And so they would cut the tree down and bring it inside in order to ward away evil spirits. But when Germany embraced Christianity, they kept the tradition, but they decided to change it and turned it into a symbol of Christmas. They would still cut down the tree, but when they brought it inside, they would hang bulbs from it. Uh, The bulbs are meant to look like fruit. So the tree was a symbol of their old religion, their old sins, And with the fruit hanging from it, it was meant to represent the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the Garden of Eden, the tree that Adam and Eve ate from when they performed the first sins. Atop this tree, which now represented for them the sins of all humanity, they put the star. The star represents the the star that appeared over Bethlehem when Christ was born. They wrapped it in tinsel and... Back then, they used candles. Now we use electric lights, which are hopefully somewhat less of a fire hazard. But together, the tinsel and the lights, along with the star, represented Christ's redeeming work on the sins of humanity. They took what was a symbol of their old pagan religion, and they used Christ to make it beautiful, to show the same way that he takes us in our old lives and makes something beautiful out of them. How many of you guys have already put your Christmas trees up this year? Shame on you, it's too early. Take them down and then put them up again next week. And then when you do it, you can, uh, as you're decorating with your kids, you can explain the story to them. And then, of course, there is the most famous and uh, probably most misunderstood Christmas tradition. That would be the gifts. We love our Christmas gifts. We spend how much time thinking, maybe months in advance for some of us, of like what gifts we're going to get our parents and our siblings and our cousins and our cousins' siblings, cousins twice removed, and whoever else you have to shop for. How many of you guys have already gotten your Christmas shopping done? Okay, I feel a little better now. Some of you, some of you guys, months in advance, you're looking for deals and you're doing this, the more organized of you. The rest of us, like me, we're going to have a really busy and panicked December 24th, sifting through leftovers in the mall. I asked Google, and Google tells me that the average American will spend $700 on Christmas gifts this year, and it will total for the season, they expect, $465 billion just our country. We really love our Christmas gifts. So on the surface, that one is also pretty easy. 
God gave Jesus as a gift for us, so we give gifts to symbolize the gift that we were given. I thought it was a little interesting, though. Again, I like to ask the questions. I thought it was odd that with these other traditions, we have these elaborate stories, the symbolism, the history, but then the gift-giving is so straightforward. So I thought there, maybe there was something a little more there, and it turned out, I, as I was doing all of my reading, I found some really interesting things about the gift-giving tradition. So I'm even going to make a, a controversial statement. I'm going to scare Pastor Lisa when I say that I think the gift-giving is actually the most important part of Christmas. The retail stores have it right. The gift-giving is the best part. And I say it that way because I notice that everybody leans forward a little and pays a little closer attention when they think that the preacher is about to spout heresy. The gift-giving is the most important part. If you understand the context of it, if you know the history. So the gift-giving tradition, that one comes to us from ancient Rome. And to understand it fully, we need to talk a little bit about some Roman culture, or we're in danger of having a cultural misunderstanding. And I, I know about this firsthand. I've had a lot of cultural misunderstandings while I was in China. For example, as I want you to see how easy this is to do, in part of our campus ministry, we used to go to these things called English corners. It's where the Chinese students who know a little bit of English and want to practice their English, they'll come and practice each other and chat in English. And they love if people like I come because they can chat, with, chat in English with me and practice their English. So at one of these, I sat down at the table. And across from me is one of my Chinese friends. Her name is uh, Si Yuan, but her English name is Nina, which is a little bit easier. And it was winter time, but Nina's family is from southern China, which is warm and sunny. And we got back from a vacation. I could tell she must have gone and visited her family in southern China because she came back with a bit of a tan. So I did, I did what you do. I said, nice tan. You compliment on the tan, right? I, she got that expression that I'm, I'm used to seeing on the face of my Chinese friends when I use an English word that they don't understand. Sometimes I see that on the face of my American friends, too. So I knew that I, I used a word she didn't understand. I thought it was probably tan, because maybe she didn't come across that word before. So I, I do the thing where I pantomime. I'm like, your skin, it's, it's darker because of the sun. And when she understood what I meant, she gasped, and, and tears welled up in her eyes, and she goes, you're so mean! And I was shocked, and one of my Chinese friends explained to me that in China dark skin is considered extremely ugly. So while we Americans, we love to get our tans, in China, the, the girls really strive after pale skin. All of their makeup is skin lighteners. And in the summer, during uh, the bright and sunny days, they'll even use umbrellas to keep the sun off their face. So going up to a Chinese girl and saying, hey, nice tan, is kind of the cultural equivalent of going up to an American girl and saying, wow, you've gained a lot of weight. So after I had extracted my foot from my mouth, I had to pull out my phone and show her pictures of tanning beds to prove that, no, actually, Americans, we, we pay money for this. We like it. I was trying to give you a compliment. But the point is, is that it's, it's really easy to have cultural misunderstandings. And every time we open up our Bibles, we are having a cross-cultural experience. Virtually all of the New Testament was written within the confines of the Roman Empire, and Rome had a very different culture from ours. One of the biggest differences is that Rome 
was what we call an honor-shame culture, where in the modern West, we are what's called a uh, guilt and innocence culture. And this has to do with uh, how we determine what things we're going to do. So to a Westerner, we care about what's right and wrong. You tell someone this is the right thing to do and you don't need to make any other arguments. That's what they want to do. You tell, something, so tell somebody this is wrong, then they won't do it. In an honor-shame culture, which in modern times is still most of North Africa, the Middle East, and most of Asia, including China, more important than what's right and wrong is what's honorable or shameful. So for example, if I ask anyone in China, they'll tell me that it's, it's morally right to take care of the people in your family. But in China, if a member of the family, say one of the children does something shameful, for example, if a Chinese daughter were to get pregnant out of wedlock, she has the chance of being ostracized from her family, kicked out, because what she's done is brought shame on the entire family. And to some people in China, that's more important than their obligation to take care of their children. Uh, the honor is very important to them. In the Middle East today, that's still one of the reasons why Christian converts from Islamic cultures can be so heavily persecuted and even killed. They're called honor killings. Uh, it's considered honorable to be an upright and devout Muslim. To convert to Christianity brings great shame on the family and even the entire community. If you ask them, they'll say it's probably they'll probably say it's morally wrong to kill. But for the sake of honor, some of them will still do it because in their cultures, honor takes precedent over right and wrong. That was the way it was in ancient Rome. So in Rome, they had a really interesting way for citizens to cultivate honor. I promise all of this is going somewhere, by the way. So this was called the patronage system. So everybody wants more honor. And to explain this, I'm going to explain it the way that it was explained to me with a story, because we learn through stories a little bit better. So imagine you have this first century Roman baker, and his name is Marcus. And he's worked in this bakery all of his life. Uh, his great-great-grandfather probably served in one of Rome's glorious expansion wars, and he must have distinguished himself because he was given this bakery as a gift, something he could have never otherwise afforded because there's a great wealth divide between the rich and the poor in Rome, very stark. And from father to son, each generation has learned the trade of bakery, and they've all worked in this one bakery. Marcus, uh, he earns a modest living, uh, just enough to support his family. He'll never really earn very much more. That's just the way it is in Rome. But one day, there's a tragedy. The bakery burns down. Marcus, uh, he'll never in his entire life make enough money to replace his bakery. And banks haven't been invented yet, so he can't take a loan. Probably doesn't have a very good credit score, even if he did. So very soon, he and his family are going to be desperate. And he doesn't really have any way out of that. But a wealthy patron steps in to save the day. Her name is Lydia. Lydia gives Marcus enough money to build a new bakery. She doesn't ask anything in return. He's not expected to repay it. He never could, even if he wanted to. And so Marcus, he accepts the gifts and he rebuilds the bakery. But in accepting the gift, he's accepted Lydia as his patron. He'll formally change his name to Marcus Lydia to show his honor and respect for her. And for the rest of his life, for anyone who comes into his new bakery, he'll tell 
tell them the story of how Lydia saved his family, about the gift that she gave and how generous she was. And so I'm almost to the point here. These uh, gifts were really common in Roman culture. Uh, even before Rome became an empire, this was the primary way that their politicians would get elected to office, is giving gifts to the poor to cultivate the honor. Roman philosophers like Seneca would write entire books on ways for the citizens to show their gratitude for receiving these gifts. Can you imagine writing an entire book about how to show gratitude for get, receiving a gift? Now, when a Roman patron gave a gift like that, there was a special word for it in Greek. It's charis. That's where our word for charity comes from, a freely given, undeserved gift that can never be repaid. And the way that a citizen was expected to respond with gratitude and loyalty and a commitment to increase the honor of their patron, that was called pistis. I brought all of this up because those words are actually really common in our New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. When our Bibles use the word charis, the undeserved gift that can never be repaid, freely given, our Bibles translate charis as grace. Don nodded. She already knew that, I bet. And the response to charis, the loyalty and the commitment to bring honor to the patron, when the Bible uses the word pistis, it's translated as faith. So Paul is writing primarily to first century Christians who are living in the Roman Empire, and he's using words that they're already familiar with when he's trying to explain how their relationship with God is. So he's using the patronage system that they already understand to explain their relationship with God. And I'm going to give a couple of verses to illustrate that. So in Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. In Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Romans 3.18, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. And one more, Romans 5.15, for if the many died at the trespass of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace from one man, Jesus, overflow to many? What Paul is saying is, look, when God sent Jesus to you, think of it how like how a patron gives a gift that is completely undeserved and respond with your belief and loyalty and honor his name just as you would in the patronage system. Tell everyone what he did for you, what grace he's given to you with this gift. That's why I said earlier, you can find the entire purpose of Christmas in the Christmas gift, the tradition, because it doesn't only reflect the gift that we were given. It also tells us our proper response to the gift that we were given, which is a commitment to increase the honor of God's name. When I first uh, came across that concept, I was still living in China. And I thought it was a little strange because we, no matter what culture we're in, we tend to look at God as if he's a member of our own culture, like God is exactly like me. And so I come across the concept of, you know, I know in China that everybody is interested in increasing their honor. They call it face. Everybody wants to have a good face. And I thought, well, surely God doesn't care about what people think about him. Because after all, it's a Western virtue that we don't care what people think about us, right? That's what we teach kids. Don't, don't care what people think about you. 
But I started to do some research in the scriptures with that in mind. And I swear, when, you, when you're a Westerner and you start reading scripture, thinking about the, the honor system, it's like you're reading the scripture for the first time because all of the Bible was written in honor-shame cultures. So, for example, we were talking about the Exodus earlier. You remember in the Exodus story, we just went over this in youth group, Every time Moses goes and says, let my people go, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Exodus 9 says, for this very purpose I have raised Pharaoh up, that I might display my power and that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. In Isaiah 48, when Israel has disobeyed God, which they tend to do a lot, and God is saying that he won't punish them, he says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not yield to another. A couple more of these. In Ezekiel, and this is where God is about to save the house of Israel from something. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name so that the nations will know that I am the Lord. Why did God choose us to be his church? In Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Two more. In Romans 15, Paul is writing about why Jesus came saying, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. Moreover, he also came so that Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, for this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And finally, in predicting his death in John 12, Jesus himself says, for this very reason I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. God seems to care an awful lot about the glory of his name, which is something that I honestly didn't know as a Westerner until a couple of years ago. And so knowing this and knowing that it's ultimately the purpose of Christmas that we give honor to God, does it change how we look at Christmas? I mean, Like the Jews celebrating Passover and honoring God by repeating the stories of what he's done, does it make us want to use the tools that we've been given in our traditions to honor God by explaining them when we do them? It makes me, when I'm decorating my Christmas tree, want to to tell people about what I'm doing as I'm decorating the tree, about how the tree represents evil and how God came and redeemed that. I can confirm firsthand that Christmas does function at least partially as intended. Uh, It definitely serves the purpose of spreading fame. While I was in China, I did not encounter anyone who hadn't heard of Christmas. Uh, In forgetting what our traditions mean, though, as the culture at large, we've started to spread the fame of the wrong things, however. When I asked Chinese students what do they think Christmas is, One response that I would often get is, well, Christmas is the day that Americans celebrate their prosperity and wealth. 
Uh, it's a day of shopping where everybody buys gifts for each other to make them happy. Uh, if I tell them that Christmas is a holy day and that it has to do with Jesus, they're shocked. They have no idea that it has anything to do with uh, Christianity or religion at all. It falls to us then, if the culture at large has forgotten what Christmas is about, it falls to us as his church to make sure that God's name is honored this season. Uh, like the Roman baker who tells everyone who comes in his door what, pa- what his patron did for him, I hope that we can use the opportunity that this holiday gives to tell everyone what God has done for us, that we can use the tools presented by our traditions to tell the stories of what God has done. Uh, like the Roman philosophers who wrote entire books on how to show proper honor and gratitude for ultimately material gifts, we've been given such a greater gift in the form of Jesus. If they can write entire books on gratitude, I wonder if this season we could spend just an hour, just an hour thinking about our traditions and and reevaluating how we celebrate Christmas. All of us have our own family traditions. Do you ever think of how to use those to glorify God this season? Uh, I know I haven't always. I wonder if we, do we tell the Christmas story every year? When I was in China and we started doing Christmas parties, I, I learned that everyone else on the team had that as a family tradition. My family didn't, which I'm glad that my mom's not here because she didn't want me admitting that. So my, my prayer for us, my hope for us is let's, let's spend that time this season Let's reevaluate our traditions and let's think of how to return to the true purpose of Christmas. A time for celebration, a time for celebration of what God has done. If we do that, we will be accomplishing the purpose of Christmas, which is to bring God honor. And that's all I have.